Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. And this is Lady Sativa. And what a beautiful day it was today. We were recording on a Saturday evening, and it was just gorgeous today, like 70-something. <laughs> you know, there's nothing better than waking up and uh, having some coffee with your morning medicine, your morning cannabis. Mm-hmm. And uh, on really nice days, it's really tough for me because I want to sit here and enjoy a couple of different methods of of cannabis <laughs> consumption while I'm drinking my coffee. Right. But it's so nice outside. I just want to go outside. Yeah. Torn. So you have to like open the drapes in the window and get the breeze going. Put your and... shoes on. That's what they say. Put so, your shoes on. Yes. But uh, we did get to work in the garden a little bit and we got to do some transplanting and stuff. So it's nice. So happy spring. Chase the fairies with the baby. So we're happy to announce that we are going to be using Grow Science officially for the grow this year. We've kind of talked about it. I talked about it on our IG. I knew I'd seen that sticker. Yep, yep. We'll talk about that too. Uh, But we are using Grow Science and uh, we're going to use their organic line. We started using them in 2017 after seeing them at an Indo Expo in Portland. Keep Portland weird. Yep. And... uh, I tried their conventional line because that's what they were. That's what that's the line that they started with, and uh, it seemed like pretty good. Now we have been using other lines to try them out before, and one of them was like a could potentially be like a 10, 11, 12, 13 bottle line, <laughs> which is a lot of bottles. So, and that there's a place for that because there's a lot of people that like to customize right down to the strain. Everybody grows different too, you know. Mm-hmm. So I mean, everybody has a method to the madness. I was really interested when I saw Grow Science because they had, it was like, I think six, five, six bottles at the time. Mm -hmm. And we used them and did really well. Uh, And so I was talking to them this year and, you know, we were interested in running them again and they have an organic line that's fairly new. Nice. So that's what we're using. I like it. A lot of the organic lines have the yucca extract Mm -hmm. and the molasses is a separate option, separate bottle. You can use them or not. We, I've used Yucca in the past. I used it with Elevation Organics and really liked it and what it did. And then also the molasses to feed the bacteria, the beneficials. So, But those are incorporated into their bottles. So mm-hmm. that's cool. Um, that is it's cool. not something extra you have to buy. It's looked at as it's something that you need in a good organic line, which I think you do. So I like that. So we're going to try them out and we'll keep you guys updated all year on how it's working and you know the results that we're seeing. We'll take pictures and stuff, post on IG and our website. Hell and yeah. we'll run that all the way through the whole year. As well as I think we've picked out, you know, our other lines, um, Good Earth Organics, we're going to run Yep. for the soil. 
which is a good organic line. It's a cocoa peat mix. And I like that. A lot of our mixes that have been outdoor heavy on the peat. Mm -hmm. So I'm liking that they have uh, the use of the cocoa a little bit more. So we'll see how that goes. And I'm excited. It's a good, good soil. But we're going to put it to the test with the cannabis strains. Yep. Um, So we're picking that up next week. So we got like approximately two square yards. How many bags did you say? Well, if we end up getting... We should try to get it loose, right? But yep. if we have to do bags, unfortunately, uh, it's like 10. Or no, no, excuse me, 35 bags. 35, I don't know. It will They're not 10 fit gallon in my bags. car. They're 10-gallon bags, two two square yards, I think is approximately about three. I want to say it's like 300 and f- almost 50 gallons. <clears throat> so if we're doing 10, 35 gallons and we're covered, right? Yeah. We're thinking about renting a truck. <laughs> might have to all my buddies have suvs right and so it's suv i couldn't really just throw loose dirt in there um i'd have to do the bags which is unfortunate because it's not very and it's not loose dirt friendly. everybody it's a tote it's called a tote yeah is what it is and i think well we still run in the uh great white and the orca for the roots although there is an organic root nutrient in in their lines so the great white's just a a it's a mycorrhizae. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to run uh, the spring pots that yep. they sent us. I'll talk about seeds on um, the episode for second gen. You know, we're running like the OCT, the organ cutthroat might mm-hmm. be a good one. Uh, the sour V might be a good one. The your banner looks pretty We're healthy. Good. We've got some good ones out there. Yeah, we do. And then we have, what else is it going to, we have the, the Crush Rush is a good grower, but you know, I already know what she does, so I'll put her in her regular 35, which is still fabric, by the way, just your standard fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the one thing I don't like about those is those damn sides fold in. Oh, so when you go to water, you're either, especially with nutrients, you're losing if you're not careful, you're losing spillage off the side because it's just flopped over and the water just rolls off. Mm-hmm. It's just a nuisance <laughs> it messes with my zen my little garden zen so this one out there the spring pot though has the rigid sides uh with the pull inserts it's not that it can't fold down but but uh, the inserts hold it up so go spring pots because then i have to deal with that crap right uh who am i missing oh mammoth p we're still running mm-hmm. man so mammoth p has did well i'm running that again <laughs> I think that's it. Am I missing anything? What else do we I, run? I don't. You're going to... Don't quiz me right now. No pop quizzes. Okay. I'm just wondering if anything comes to head that you see I seen had a dab and all. Right. And it's kicking in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, maybe that's our cue to roll into the interview. So our special guest, Gross Science, I'm talking with Kyle. And now Kyle is the rep for our area. He's a really smart guy. I believe he has a master's. Uh, he'll explain all that on the interview. But, man, this dude brings next level to the soil science. Is that the one I walked in and I came home you were interviewing? Yeah, yeah. He's We, we talked for quite a while. I did have, I mean, I edited that down quite a bit, almost about 50 minutes, but I was so enthralled, you know. So. You were there for, I know that you were recording for a while and then you went live for a little yeah. while too. No, no worries, though. I took the very best segments and I scrunched it into like an hour and 10. <laughs> so that's why we'll keep this short. But everything was really good info. And so I appreciate it to Gross Science 
uh, Jake, we appreciate it. We're glad to be working with him. Here it is, Kyle with Grow Science. All right, I'm here with Kyle from Grow Science today, and we're going to be talking about some soil and some plant science. Uh, Kyle, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having us, Craig. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. Now, we talked a little bit yesterday, and it sounded like you really had some really good stuff to share. So why don't you tell us a little bit about growth science and yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So growth science uh, company, we produce commercial cannabis nutrients. Or, so I guess the idea behind growth science is to provide nutrients for commercial cannabis cultivators at a quality product at an affordable price. So that's kind of where growth started, growth science all started from. And we started with our conventional line, which is base A, base B, solid start, rock solid, and strength. So just the five products there. And then almost two years ago now, we incorporated in our organic line. Oh, maybe a year ago now, we brought it to market. So now we have the two product lines. We have a conventional product line. And, and an organic product line, all liquid fertilizer products. And um, so that's kind of where we started and what growth science is. We really aim to provide scalable inputs to these commercial growers. Um, for me, I, I started, I came on to growth science to help formulate and bring to market this organic product line. And I, I came on, joined the team, that was about two years ago now. And um, prior to that, I guess, let's see, after high school, I moved out to Colorado, kind of joined the medical cannabis scene that was really coming to front at that point. So spent a few years out there doing that, you know, working at Grows, growing, working at a hydro store and, and things like that. And I think what I realized, especially working at the hydro store, I was able to tell people which products they needed, but I didn't really understand why. So, you know, it's like, oh, my leaves are yellowing at the bottom of the plant. It's like, oh, you need more nitrogen. But like, why? What is that nitrogen doing in the plant? I, I didn't fully understand these things then. So I think that's really what encouraged me to go back to school. So I went to college then to study plant biology, got a degree in plant biology with a minor in chemistry. After that, I, I was really interested in research. I was also really interested in mushrooms. So I decided to go to graduate school then to study mycology to get more and more of an in-depth education on fungi, but also just on the scientific process and research in general. So after that, then I moved out to Oregon, worked for a different specialty fertilizer company up here, and uh, also worked for a few cannabis farms, large scale, indoor, outdoor. And then, um, like I said, about two years ago now, uh, joined up with Grow Science. Nice, nice. So it sounds like you've got quite the history with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So I just want to let the listeners know, too, that, uh, you know, we've tried on our grows. Uh, we tried for a full year, started an indoor, of course, then moved to outdoor. We tried your conventional line, which worked out really well. Lots of good benefits. And I'll, I'll talk about those later. But we're, you know, it's good to hear that now you guys have got the organic line. 
And uh, is that fairly new or it's been out for a year or two? And so I, I think it was brought to market last April, May, I want to say, is when it finally hit the shelves. So we'd been working on it for a few years, but I think it was like almost a year ago now that mm -hmm. it was actually brought to market. Do you want to talk about organics a little bit and, you know, the soil, how it's related to soil, how it works, you know, versus conventional um, benefits maybe? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in my opinion, um, organic agriculture is not necessarily switching from using this product line to just using organic inputs. In my opinion, there's more to it. Because when, when we are growing organically, whether we are growing cannabis or tomatoes, we are really reliant on the soil health and, um, you know, all the biology that comes with that. So I, I think that soil biology is really key to soil health, which then is very important for plant health. Um, oftentimes I'd say in organic agriculture, people are like, we're not feeding our plants, we're feeding the soil. And then the soil in turn feeds the plants. Um, I think that's a, a nice way to look at it. I don't think that the biology itself does all the work, but it does a lot of the heavy lifting. I think the biology in your soil performs a number of different functions. So having a diversity of biology in your soil in my opinion, is key. And we see that time and time again just in the field of biology where diversity is really important for the success of a particular system. So when I say diversity, I mean we want to have a lot of different organisms in our soil, both micro and macro, and we want to have different species just in case one of them gets wiped out for whatever reason, um, the whole system doesn't collapse. There's still so yeah i would say one of the points with our organic line is to feed these soil microbial communities so we are able to kind of select for different groups of microorganisms whether they be bacteria or fungi or protozoa by what food sources we put into our soil media. So for instance, grow and bloom are two base products in our organic line. Um, those are primarily derived from fish hydrolysate that we have. So this fish hydrolysate that has all these fats and oils in it, it's, it becomes a really good fungal food source. So it's really attractive to a number of different soil fungi. And these soil fungi play a key role in your soil community because one of the main roles that they're doing is they, they'll be called uh, saprophytic fungi. So those are organisms that are breaking down dead organic materials and releasing nutrients in a plant available form. So in addition to breaking down some of these more complex organic molecules, well, while they're breaking those down, they're also releasing all sorts of organic acids, vitamins, hormones, all of which may, may influence plant growth. So, um, you know, and then as those fungi continue to grow, they get eaten by nematodes or whatever their predator may be, and then those get consumed by higher trophic levels. And as waste products are excreted, those are excreted in plant-available nutrients. 
So that's where this whole soil food web, I think, is it's very fascinating and very interesting and important. But I don't think science fully understands what is going on and these complex relationships and interactions between all these different organisms. We don't even know what organisms are in the soil, you know, let alone how they interact with each other and the balance of them. Um, so yeah, there's a lot we don't fully understand about organic agriculture, soil health and whatnot, but it's a fascinating field and there's new research coming out all the time. And um, yeah, it's interesting to see where it's all gonna go. But, um, but I guess one of the key points I would like to say with organic agriculture, is I I think using organic inputs is definitely going to improve the overall health of your soil and your soil fertility. So if you plan on cultivating the same area, especially if you're monocropping it year after year after year, um, you're definitely going to see benefits of using organic inputs over using just dry salt type inputs, which can oftentimes harm the biological community and just decrease the overall quality of your soil. Sure. Now, so are you saying that you should probably introduce these micros and macros uh, right from the beginning um, to get your soil essentially going right away? Ooh, that's a loaded question. There's a lot of variables there. You know, what I would recommend is doing soil testing. Um, I, I think that that greatly helps because you're not, I mean, just looking at it, I can't tell you how many parts per million of nitrogen or whatever you have in your soil. So I, I think that doing soil tests and sticking with the same laboratory is going to help you understand what nutrients are in your soil and what are becoming available over the course of the season. Now, as say you have a field and you've taken good care of it, you've compost, you've added compost maybe in the fall, you do a cover crop, uh, maybe you lime your field depending on the pH and calcium and whatnot. I definitely think that prior to planting into that soil, if you are to apply some sort, I, I like fish hydrolysate. If you are to apply a fish hydrolysate product like Grow, for instance, um, that's going to give you your, your biology a little kickstart and jumpstart to get it all active and consuming things that are already in the soil prior to planting so that maybe then some of your nutrients become more available over the course of the season. A lot of these dry amendments that we are putting into our soils um, don't necessarily become plant available over the course of the season. They take a while to break down. So by, you know, using some sort of biostimulant, right, to increase your biological activity, well, that um, in turn would decrease the time that these dry amendments are going to become available. So essentially, they'll become available sooner than they would have if you had had no biology present at all. Sounds like, you know, right from even before planting, maybe you should do the testing as well as if you're going to put dry amendments in there, maybe put those in early as well. Oh, a absolutely. You know, I, I would recommend, you know, typically, so it depends on what we're talking about, right? There's sure. outdoor cultivation, there's yep. outdoor 
cultivation in an acre or a hundred acres straight into the ground. There's also outdoor cultivation that people are growing in 300 gallon pots or something like that. And I think that's a common place of confusion for people is when we say soil. Are we talking about like in the ground soil or are we talking about this designer soilless potting media essentially that we are getting in a bag from a number of companies that are available? And those are very different things. They have different properties, they have different characteristics, everything from their nutrient holding availabilities to just their structure and the physical characteristics of them. But also when, when you're taking your soil tests, it's important to communicate with your lab, is this coming from the ground outside or is this more of an amended, say, living soil that you've been working with that you bought and then added in all these dry amendments? Those are very different things. Uh, actually, you know, a lot of the listeners will be, you know, some of both. Uh, we do have farms that, that are obviously, you know, tier one, tier twos and, and have fields, but on the same token, we also have a lot of people that are just medical grows, um, even personal grows. Um, and I guess that's going to be different because a lot of those folks either do make their own soil, uh, during the year or just, you know, buy bag fertilizer or fertilizer <laughs> bag soil. Uh, right. yeah, whatever brand. And so, uh, I mean, I guess there's two sides to that, uh, but if right. you go ahead, I was just going to say in either way, I think, you know, there's going to be some nutrients, whether you're planting in the ground or whether you're planting into a bag soil, there's going to be some dry amendments typically that are in this soil or soil product. And by adding in a food source for your microorganisms, that is going to boost your biological activity, which in turn will increase the release of available plant nutrients. Now, I noticed just out of curiosity, when I first got your organic line, uh, I noticed that you guys had uh, molasses in your product. Is that for, is that the carbohydrates for the, the micros in there? Yeah, precisely. So that's one of them. That That is one of them. You know, we also include yucca extract in there, which is another source of carbohydrates and saponins and sugars, you know, that just is a great, I think of those, those two ingredients, molasses and yucca, those are great bacterial food sources from what I've seen in my own personal research, looking at this stuff under a microscope and whatnot. Um, those are readily available food sources for a lot of different bacterial communities that will start to grow and digest these different um, molecules. Molasses in particular is a complex sugar and there's a lot of different mineral elements to it as well. Um, again, I think having a diversity of food sources in your fertilizer is going to then in turn draw a diversity of microorganisms into your soil community. Sure. I also noticed that you guys have, which is really nice is you have a um, bottle that is just concerned with roots rooting. Right. Yeah. And obviously that is probably, well, it is an important part of organic growing. Um, can you talk about that? What, what that all consists of? Yeah. So our rooting product, um, that's going to be mainly kelp based. Okay. And, 
kelp kelp products have been used in organic you know organic agriculture we'll call it um, for you know hundreds of years probably and I think that there's there's a lot of versatility in kelp products and they're not all the same of course but some of the benefits that people attribute to these kelp products is root development and whatnot. So kelps in the wild, in particular, okay, so the kelp that we use in root magic, Ascophyllum nidosum, so that's coming off of the um, northeast Atlantic, right? And Ascophyllum nodosum is an intertidal species of kelp, meaning that some of its life, it's totally underwater, but some of its life, you know, the tides are further back and it's completely dried up. So in my mind, what that says to me is that this species of kelp is used to dealing with this constant stress, right? And it has evolved ways of dealing with that. So in some of the ways that the kelps deal with that is by producing different hormones that allow them to tolerate different biotic and abiotic stresses. So when we extract that, we're able to extract a lot of these different phytocompounds from the kelp and then supply those to our plants. So like I said, kelps have been used for a number of years in organic agriculture and one of the benefits is rooting. And I believe that comes from some of the phytocompounds that are extracted from the kelp. So in addition to the kelp, we also use aloe vera and molasses and yucca in our rooting product called Root Magic. And um, all of those things really help stimulate the root growth and also the biology as well, because like I, said, I, I think that's important for rooting as well, um, having those communities right next to the root zone that it's a very tight I would say relationship between a lot of these bacteria and the roots of the plants um, yeah uh, and for, this is just not necessarily important but that's the giant kelp that you're talking about right it's not the one this the species that you're talking about I, I don't. I think the giant kelp that you're referring to is actually found on the west coast, oh, okay. which is Macrocystis integrifolia, and that species we include in some of our other products, uh, abundance and Oculum harvest. Oh, okay, okay. Like I said, it probably doesn't really matter so much. All species grow pretty quick, though, don't they? Yeah, kelp species. Yeah, kelp forests are pretty cool, you know, and and. It's great that we can harvest these things sustainably and then use them in agriculture. Um, that's great. And the, I, I think the more, the more byproducts or waste products that we can utilize in our farming system, you know, the more sustainable we will truly be. Obviously, when you're a home grower, you know, versus a multiple tier twos or whatever, that's difficult to scale. Um, these big farms, it's difficult to be, you know, raising your own cattle on the same farm and harvesting the manure and composting it and then applying that. You know, there's a lot to it. So sometimes it's difficult to scale these uh, organic practices. But I think that is part of the reason why using um, 
these products is attractive to the larger scale cultivators that maybe don't have time to be, you know, mixing their nutrients for three hours or whatever, or making their own compost tea with all these different inputs. This is kind of simplified for that and um, hopefully more appealing to the larger scale cultivators. I think it would be, you know, that was one thing I noticed that when we used your conventional line was, you know, I, I've tried multiple lines in the past and uh, I've done both, you know, the simpler uh, four or five bottles, six, sometimes whatever. Uh, also have done some that have 12, 13 bottles. And that's great. Uh, you know, that's two different styles of growing. Um, you know, some people really like to get into a lot of multiple bottles and and mix and match and make these, you know, custom brews or whatever but i found with your conventional line and i'm, I'm pretty sure i'm going to find it with your organic line the conventional line was was simple and it really produced well uh, you know I, I didn't spend a lot of time feeding my plants and and that was nice because there's there's always other things you can do especially on a big farm right right <laughs> so right it's also a little bit more affordable um you know it's regardless of the pricing obviously if you only have to buy six bottles then instead of 13 not to say that you can narrow that down a lot of those lines you can narrow down as well too but um it worked really well and we're really really happy about that i did notice one thing about the conventional line was that it worked really well right from the beginning so my seedlings uh, were really they looked really healthy um you know they grew uh, real uh, you know they they stacked really well uh, the leaves were nice and green. I mean, it was just really nice from the beginning. So I, I did like that. That was just my little piece there. It, it was just an, it was, it made for me and my style of grow, which just is a 10 by 20, you know, uh, greenhouse. It's not huge. So I'm by far not a large scale or anything like that. But uh, even that, you know, it takes time to run, you know, uh, something small like that uh, <laughs> uh, when you've got other responsibilities as well. <laughs> so, yeah. but it worked really well. And I just wanted to, to point that out. That's great. And that's something that I advocate, you know, obviously 2019, you know, it's a changing industry. There's a lot of, there's a lot of big money in this, but that doesn't mean, you know, it, it's difficult because I can go down the street and get a $40 out from the store. Right. So maybe that's deterring home cultivators. But that's something I advocate is, you know, again, whether it's a tomato or a cannabis plant, like grow your own. It, it, yeah, I think it helps realize the value of it and um, just gives you a different appreciation for it and, it and becomes more sustainable, you know. If we can produce just a little bit of our own food or a little bit of our own medicine, I think maybe the world would be a better place. I don't know. <laughs> But I, it's definitely something I advocate. I'm not just for large scale. Oh, no, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. We're for it all, too. We we appreciate all the big farms. You know, they bring out such good product. And to be able to go down to a dispensary and, and have all this selection and of good stuff and, you know, all those options, I think is just wonderful. Uh, I, and I always think there is a place for home growing and providing your own food and medicine. Um, just like I think with even alcohol, people that make their own you know, beer at home, say, or, or whatever wine, um, you know, it's, it's never affected of any big sort, uh, the, the big industries. So, I mean, there's, there's always those places. I, I find that, you know, when we do our home grow, we still purchase a lot of dispensary, you know, quality product. I find it nice though, that we can, uh, if you get into it as a home grower, you can 
do things like make your own uh, tinctures or make your own uh, edibles is a big one. There's so many recipes online anymore to be able to do that. You know, it doesn't take too much fancy stuff, you know, even just a little coconut oil or something and you can make a lot of things. Oh yeah, just uh, throw some cream in a crock pot with like a pound of butter. Yeah. It's like, oh. Right? Yeah, and and you know, all of a sudden you got yourself some some adult uh, edibles you can uh, hide away. But uh, so I find that nice because then we can kind of do things that we want to do and still purchase good cannabis at the dispensary or or use our own too as well. But it also allows you to experiment, I think, a little bit with different products or, you know, just different lines. Uh, a lot of times there's lines that I'll have growing that I just can't find in the stores at the time. So that's cool. Um, or you can do your own pheno hunting, stuff like that. It's just fun as a grower to be able to do that. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we're very fortunate to have the dispensary system here in Oregon. But for me, yeah, I, I grow more than I can consume by myself. But I like to go to the dispensary because, you know, I get to try strains before I grow them, before I spend six months, you know, trying to grow it out. And I don't even know if I like it or not, you know. So, and, and there's just so many hot strains coming out every week, you know. Um, That's true. So, yeah, and I, I, I like trying them all and finding out what I like and what works for me and whatnot. So, yeah, that's kind of another side of the picture, I suppose, is the industry overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's one thing I really wanted to get into that w- when we were talking yesterday, you had mentioned it, and it really uh, it really struck an interest to me because I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it. And uh, so with organic growing, uh, since that's what we're talking about, uh, you know, a lot of people will use, and it's big with, or you know, strictly organic growers is to use cover crops and other plants that, you know, whether they provide nutrients to the soil or or somehow benefit the actual cannabis and, and other species of plants around um but you had mentioned that fungi had was uh something you could use as well or would be beneficial to the soil can we talk about that because that's really interesting yeah absolutely so i i I can talk about like soil fungi or fungi in general and their role in agriculture Mm -hmm. i guess either way go ahead go broad (laughs) sure and narrow down um so yeah there are different groups of fungi. As I mentioned earlier, I talked about saprophytic fungi. And those are fungi that are decomposing dead organic remains, whether that be an animal, plant tissue, you know, um, something of that sort. So in almost all soils, there are going to be fungi present just because there's such a ubiquitous kingdom of organisms that yeah they're just everywhere they're very successful you know at every breath that we take we're breathing in fungal spores and hopefully we're exhaling them all as well (laughs) so yeah they're they're really just everywhere um and again with these saprophytic fungi a lot of them are just decomposing dead organic remains so in the soil as i said they can be releasing nutrients it it, particularly when you have, so I'm thinking about a field condition now, right? The farm building passed, hemp things getting big, whatnot. So if you're to harvest your plants and you are to leave some like stubble there or some of the remains of that plant tissue, the stem and whatnot, the roots, well, now that's going to be an attractive food source for the soil fungi to come in and start to break down some of this material, some of the root tissue, the stem tissue, and all of that. 
And as those fungi do that, they are releasing nutrients. They are also helping build soil structure and releasing other compounds into the soil that may influence plant growth. So that those are like soil decomposers. And within these saprophytic fungi, we have primary decomposers, then we have secondary decomposers, and even tertiary and down the line. So our primary decomposers, maybe they'll be decomposing cellulose or lignin, typically. Those are the two. And then uh, secondary decomposers will come in, and they'll break down stuff even further, and so on down the line. Okay. So... Another type of fungi that we find in the soil that is beneficial to plant growth that I would say is pretty common, or at least familiar to a lot of people, is mycorrhizal fungi. And within mycorrhizal fungi, there are a bunch of different types of mycorrhizae. The two most well-known, I would say, are um, endo and ectomycorrhizae. With the cannabis plant, as far as I know, with all the research that I've seen, only endomycorrhizal fungi can actually infect the cannabis plant, this annual plant. Ectomycorrhizal fungi, those fungi are more so inoculating and working with uh, more perennial crops, whether they be bushes or trees, hardwood trees, softwood trees, things of that nature. So, yeah, when I'm looking at a product and it has ectomycorrhizal in it, I'm like, eh, I'm probably not going to use that for my can for my cannabis just because I don't, not saying it's going to hurt anything, but I just don't think it's necessary. So endomycorrhizae are what we're looking for with cannabis, and those are mycorrhizal fungi that will infect the root of the cannabis plant and actually penetrate into or in between the root cells and they form a little structure called an arbuscule. It kind of looks like a tree. And this will enter into the plant cell wall, but it will not cross the plasma membrane. And that arbuscule, that will be where the plant and the fungus can exchange nutrients. So there's a lot of surface area there. The fungus is highly branched there and close to that plasma membrane of the plant cell. And the fungus, typically, the, the most common things that it will give it is phosphorus, right, and water. Because the fungus can, <clears throat> it's inside the root, but it also stretches out into the soil as well. So it greatly increases the plant's ability to gain nutrients and water. So those are very, very beneficial for cannabis growth. Now... There are techniques that you can use to see, you know, okay, I added this product at week four of veg or whatever. You can take those plant roots at the end of it and see if they were actually colonized by okay. that rhizofungus. Interesting. You know, and that, that might not be like a home technique, but, but it, it is easy enough to do at your house. Um, it's just staining the roots for the presence of these uh, fungal structures. So, yeah, I, I, I think those are great in organic agriculture. And a lot of the soils that are being produced already contain these spores in them. That the Companies inoculate their potting soils with endomycorrhizal species. And also, if you're 
if you're planting outside, if you're doing acres of hemp or whatever, depending on what was grown there previously, there's a good chance that there are already mycorrhizal spores in your soil. So do you know if that's something they can test for when you do the soil testing? Just off um, I mean, sure, you can do that. There are multiple ways you can either do, I mean, most labs that you're sending soil to for like nutrient analysis, you'd have to look up the lab. I would say most labs probably aren't going to do like a biological type analysis that are also doing a nutrient analysis, but some of them will. And I would say the best way to look for that is you, you would sift through the soil and look for the presence of these mycorrhizal spores. They're fairly large. I mean, not large enough to see with the naked eye typically, but they're large enough to see on a microscope for sure. This might sound funny, but if as a farmer or even a grower, if you're, uh, if you're starting your plants, say, indoors for the season or in a greenhouse or something, and you're starting in smaller pots and end up, are going to end up in the ground, it, I mean, would it be beneficial or would it be possible to inoculate with like say the endo and and have that started in your pot or in the dirt that's with the plant and then plant that all into the ground when you transplant and then have that be able to benefit it or would it just not really work well i would say it's most likely not going to hurt anything sure. you know it's like is it worth the cost the cost benefit now i see yeah um so yeah i think it definitely could help Again, it's interesting when we're when we're talking about growing cannabis indoors, we'll say, and is mycorrhizal fungi necessary? I don't know, because we're feeding our plants daily what they need. So I think it's less likely that the fungus and the plant are going to spend that energy to make that association. If the plant has everything it needs, the fungus has everything it needs, it's like what what's the point of this? relationship right so i don't have an answer to that i just wonder about these things and i i think that us as growers sh should do our own in-house experiments to see what works and what doesn't work in our particular situation because i i think we try to generalize things oh mycorrhizal fungi works mycorrhizal fungi doesn't work and it's like well maybe it works in your particular circumstance but it doesn't work in my hydroponics or whatever it may be let's talk about indoors do you find that indoor growers do well with your the organics oh yeah okay i i see a big move you know it's kind of hot and trendy right now this living soil right. um so yeah i i just got back from colorado a month or so ago and a lot of people are doing these living soil beds indoors and are feeding our organic nutrients and brewing teas, brewing teas with the organic nutrients. Um, but yeah, they are going fully organic, quote unquote, and are very successful indoors. I know of a farm that we don't work with uh, in Nevada that is really doing like living soil beds with um, companion planting and cover crops and this, and they're really doing well. I've had a chance to try some of their flower. It was excellent. Um, so yeah, I think people are doing it very successfully. And I, I think one of, one of the biggest hesitations or concerns that people have with growing organically indoors is the yield. 
That's what I always hear. You know, it's like, when am I going to get the same yield? Well, what yield am I going to get? It's like, I can't answer that question for you. There are so many variables involved in that. Um, but I can say that people are doing it successfully and top quality flower indoors growing it organically. So it, it can definitely be done. Sure. Well, and I've noticed, I don't know, it sounds like you may have been hinting a little bit, but I have noticed that my organic runs, I don't think we're quite as much volume as when I'm doing a conventional line, but I did, I think, and I could be wrong, but it seems like a lot of times it could have been the strains too, but it seems like a lot of times there was some little bit more flavor to them. I don't know about potency potency because I we don't test, you know, right, stuff. Right. I would say in my opinion, why organically produced crops may have additional flavor associated with them is because opposed to hydroponically grown, right? That's like the total opposite. So in hydroponics we're feeding the plant everything it needs. It's 17, 18 essential nutrients that it needs and really nothing more, nothing less. The plant is happy. It has all the nutrients that it needs to grow and survive and reproduce. Okay. Well, in organic, we're feeding the soil. We're feeding the plant. The plant's getting all the nutrients that it needs. But remember, we have all this biology in the soil that's producing all these different organic compounds, whether they be organic acids, vitamins, hormones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that a lot of these different compounds that are produced by our soil biology may influence the plant growth. Maybe they're not essential for plant growth, but maybe they're very beneficial for plant growth in some way. And in my opinion, in my experience, what I've seen is that some of these organically produced flower products, they're just more appealing. They're more, they have a richer, um, aromatic profile to them that in my opinion they might be more chemically diverse because they have interactions with all these other molecules besides just those NPK and micronutrients you know so that's kind of what I what I think at the same time we were talking yesterday there aren't really any organic USDA does not currently certify high THC cannabis as being organic because it is not a federally regulated crop. So with that, I mean, I don't think that there is any harm in using both conventional and organic nutrients together and getting the best of both worlds. And in that way, we can feed our plants exactly the chemical nutrients that they need. That's the chemistry part of it. But we can also support our soil life and our soil biology with our organic fertilizers and improve the soil health and which can then protect the plant against various diseases and pathogens and so yeah i think that's not a bad way to go and maybe sometimes people get in their head that you have to either be conventional or organic when i i think that maybe it could be most sustainable to be using a hybrid application of both of these and i've heard um people refer to this Either I mean, there's a lot of different terms. I'll throw a few of them out there. Integrated nutrient management, biological farming, um, yeah, restorative agriculture, eco-agriculture. I, I, I think there's a number of different ways that we could do it. And I think that exploring all of these different techniques and finding out what works for us. Um, 
right now what I'm doing in my medical grow is I'll just oscillate. I'll do, I typically in flower, I'll do three feedings a week or three waterings a week. And maybe the first one I'll do organic. Then the second one I'll do conventional nutrients. And then the third one, maybe I'll do just straight water or a light compost tea, something like that. And plants, plants love it, you know. Another option, say you're growing in hydroponic and aeroponic systems, something like that. Maybe you're just using the conventional bases in your hydroponic system and then you're foliar feeding some organic products so that, and the benefits of foliar feeding the organic products is, again, these are organic compounds that you're applying to the leaf, the leaf tissue, right? And that will draw beneficial microorganisms to your phylosphere. Your phylosphere is just the area surrounding the leaf tissue. Um, so it's going to draw a community of beneficial microorganisms to your leaf tissue. So now say uh, powdery mildew or some other pathogen spore tries to land on your leaf. Well, there's no room for it and it can't really get a foothold. So in that way, of applying organic inputs foliarly to your plants can, may help improve against protection against pathogens. So there is another hybrid application where you are utilizing both conventional and organic nutrients. I've tried so many different ways. I, I've tried using conventional with, with adding in, um, you know, organics, uh, like an organic bone meal or, or something like that, that really, uh, just adds to it. And I've tried the other way where I've ran all organics and then used uh, conventional to, uh, maybe, um, since they absorb quicker, you know, maybe to fix a nutrient deficiency or something not related to pH, obviously you got to keep your pH straight. Um, but different plants require different amounts of things. You know, I've seen plants that require a lot more calcium, magnesium than, than other plants. Um, so just stuff like that. But in my opinion, I believe that the mix, the hybrid is, is a really effective and, um, and, and still an easy way to grow. Um, it's, it's like having extra tools in your belt and just uh, being able to pull out the right tool at the right time. Absolutely. And I'm becoming more and more fond of that, to be honest. You know, I, I still have passion for sustainability, permaculture, regenerative agriculture. I, I, I love all that stuff. I do. But lately, I've been experimenting more and more with this biological farming system. And maybe that can be a transitional thing that people are doing, going from, say, using dry salts to, all right, now we're going to incorporate some organics into, all right, now we're fully organic, we're growing all our own nutrients, we're closing the loop and making it truly more sustainable. I think that's great. But I, I think that utilizing these conventional inputs, but also having some organic material in there, that is going to make a more efficient use of your fertilizer dollar. Especially if we're outdoors, when we're, when we're just putting in readily available ionic nutrients into our soil medium, a lot of that nitrogen in particular, nitrate nitrogen, that's going to be leached out of the bottom Ammonium can be uh, volatilized off into the atmosphere. So when we are just using straight conventional, however, when we add a carbon source or some organic fertilizer and with it, well, all those uh, mineral ions are attached to a 
say, a carbon backbone molecule, and they're less likely to be lost uh, either through leaching or through volatilization into the atmosphere. It helps hold on to these nutrients, and then it also helps benefit your soil as well and create a healthier environment. Well, it's, I think it's good that these larger grows and farms, you know, do use um, permaculture and, and um, you know, organics and stuff because they, you know, obviously they really would impact on a larger scale uh, the environment part of it. Is there a fairly big impact on a smaller grow, like a home grow? Growing cannabis indoor, no matter what scale, can be resource intensive. I mean, we're running double-ended, 1,000-watt HPS lights. We're running AC. We're running heating, dehumidifying. You know, it's a lot of energy that we're using. Is that sustainable? I don't think so, really. You know, but say you're a home grower who's just growing outdoors in your backyard with the sunlight. Is that sustainable? I don't think it gets more sustainable than that. So I, I, I think it depends on what you're doing and what your goals are. What's important to you? Are you trying to produce the best quality flower that you possibly can and you don't care about what you're using? That's fine. Some people are doing that and that's what their goal is. My goal personally is to at least be environmentally conscious and aware of what I'm doing to the environment. And obviously there's a balance, um, but I try to be as good as I can, you know, and for me, there's things that I can do as a home medical grower that these larger scale ones can't do. For instance, like uh, oh, microbial products, you know, I'm not really spending hundreds of dollars a bottle on microbial products. One, because I don't, I, I just use everything that I grow to consume myself. Um, so there's no like financial gain for me other than I don't have to buy it from a dispensary. Right. So for me, instead of purchasing these microbial products, well, I'll go out into the woods. I'm here in Oregon. I go out into the woods and I'll collect some leaf duff and just some, uh, you know, duff matter, I guess, from the forest floor. And I'll incorporate that into my soil or I'll make a tea with that. And that is my sort of microbial inoculum that I utilize. And so my point being, I can do this on a small scale, but can a large scale commercial cultivator be doing that? Probably not, because I think one of the things that these com commercial cultivators are more concerned with than me as a personal medical grower is consistency, right? They have a brand to withhold and whatnot. So in my opinion, when you're using formulated products that are the same time and time again, that's where you can get some of this consistency from that um, maybe home growers are slightly less concerned with. So, so I take it you don't buy too much uh, indoor grown weed. <laughs> I know, tough question. I had to hit you with that though. So you go to the dispensary and you're like, All right, I'm looking for outdoor. And they're like, what? Yeah, exactly. Outdoor? And that's what I was getting at. Yeah, 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 so much, so many people are going and just say, "Show me your indoor," or uh, you know, that's a lot of dispensaries are geared towards just indoor. They might have four or five little selections of some outdoor, but it's all greenhouse and indoor, which is is I can see the difference. For instance, TKO Farms grew some uh, Sherbinsky uh, mochi gelatos and uh, sherbets and stuff that were all outdoor, and they were just 
amazing. Uh, and how I feel about it is at least as good as indoor. And uh, now they didn't look like indoor, but I mean, you're, you're, you're vaporizing or, or uh, combusting the material. I'm not sure you know, how beautiful it has to look. Yeah. I mean, I can see experience. I think um, it is, it's part of it. I just, uh, you know, um, I guess my point was, is I've seen a lot of outdoor that for me and taste flavor and, and how it affects me and this and that is, is just as good as any indoor minus, you know, say 20% of the bag appeal. Absolutely. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take some of my indoor flower and I'll try to trade it with friends and they're like for their outdoor and they like want to give me twice as much of their outdoor for my indoor. And it's like, no, no, no. So coming back to that, I do think, um, especially in Humboldt County, you know, there's a lot of great outdoor growers. And I think that there is something to outdoor Southern Oregon as well. Outdoor grown flower having something that indoor just doesn't have. And what I attribute that to is kind of, um, so the terroir or the flavor of that flower due to the ecological region in which it was grown, that's kind of what we refer to as terroir or Appalachian. Those are two similar terms, they're different, but um, they refer to the flavor of the region or whatnot, you know, similar to Champagne and the, so, I think that a lot of this terroir and the uh, environmental characteristics that dictate how your flower smells or maybe contribute to the flavor of your final product, I think a lot of that is the microbial community that lands on your flower surface or that is in your soil that you're growing your plants in. I think that microbes can contribute to the overall aroma tremendously. Um, there's a group of organisms called endophytes. And endophytes are going to be organisms that live inside of the leaf tissue or inside of the plant tissue. So they could be living inside of the roots. They could be living inside of the stems, inside of the leaves, flowers, everywhere. And... So endophytes, they could be fungi, they could be bacterial, or possibly something else. Those are the two main ones that I, I know of, fungal endophytes. That's what I guess I know the most of. And there is research showing that some of these endophytic fungi communities, or maybe just a single endophytic fungus, can influence like the aromatic profile and the medicinal compound concentration that is in some medicinal plants. So this has not really been researched much um, with cannabis, obviously, because it's been illegal and whatnot. But I have seen research looking at other medicinal plants. I think it was lavender was the one I was looking at most recently. And they were looking at the role of these endophytic fungi in helping create some of these medicinal compounds. And what they found is when they had these endophytic fungi in the plants versus when they endophytic fungi were absent from the plants, the, the plants that had them had a higher concentration of whatever medicinal compound they were looking for or had a more unique uh, aromatic profile as well. So I think that that ties into terroir and the overall 
the overall, I guess, um, characteristics of the crops that are grown in that region. Do you think that that is something that can greenhouse grows can have as far as regional not being sealed off from the environment, so to speak? I mean, slightly, but not really. They're not like hermetically sealed or whatever. And um, stuff's going to get in. Stuff's on your clothes and stuff. You know, I think we try to keep areas sterile, but it's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to do um, unless you're a super tight indoor, really controlled facility, which I have not seen any like that. Um, But in greenhouses and hoop houses and all, absolutely do I think that. airborne fungi and bacteria can get in there. Let's talk about this real quick since we're talking about greenhouses and such. Uh, Now, outdoor versus, say, greenhouse. Uh, Now, we're going to get some UV damage or degradation on just outdoor cannabis, correct? On on the, like, the uh, trichomes and such, the oils and stuff. Right. I mean, also, I think uh, one of the suggested reasons why THC is in cannabis is to protect against UV. So if a plant's exposed to more UV light, is it going to produce more THC? I don't know. Is, it gonna, is that UV going to degrade other qualities of the flower? Probably. So, yeah, I think it's off. Well, it seems like you've almost got three different kinds in the sense that outdoors is a little different than greenhouse is a little different than indoor. And it, to, from what I've seen, prices reflect it. I don't know. I don't know if that's because it's a consumer driven thing or if it's really differences. Um, I don't know. But do you think there's something to having that cover of whether it's poly or plastic or you know, whatever material it is, uh, do you think that there's, is that what's changing, making those changes, you think? Like less UV coming in or more climate control? I don't, I I think better is not the appropriate term to use. I think it's different. Different. I think it's different. And I think it depends on your preference, you know? I think some people, it depends on what's important to you. Definitely some people prefer greenhouse maybe over indoor because it's more sustainable and maybe they think it has more flavor. Maybe people only smoke outdoor because they're like, that's how I get the true medicine. There are more full compounds, only organic sun drum. There's definitely those people, right? And at the other end of the spectrum, there's people that are like, no, I want indoor, pristine, huge bag appeal, nice buds, everything looks perfect, you know? So it depends on what you want, and is there a better way to grow? I don't think so. I think it's, again, all about preference. Obviously, you can do it in any of those three manners, and um, there's pros and cons to each. You know, at first, when a state just legalizes, everyone will come into the store and just be like, all right, what's going to get me the most messed up? You know, what's going to get me the highest? Highest THC, that's what I want. Okay, cool. Now it's like, all right, I'm I'm tired of just like getting super stunned all day, you know. So I want something that tastes good. Give me something with a lot of terpenes in it. Okay, cool. I got something that tastes really good. I get really high, or I like the effects, whatever. And I think the next kind of wave is going to be, give me that ratio. I don't want 37% THC flour because I feel anxious and paranoid when I consume that. 
I want a two to one ratio product that has enough CBD in it that's going to make me feel this certain way. I think I think that's what I see um, consumers being more attracted to in the future. Yeah, and it makes sense. I've had a couple labs or yeah, testing labs that have said the same thing that they feel that's even an, a more more beneficial way for for people to uh, approach it. So yeah, it's probably true. Probably come around the corner like that. Let's finish off here with your uh, just talking a little bit about you guys with your organic line. Is there anything in the soil or certain types of I don't know, additives or something that you would just recommend with organic growing? One thing that you can, one beneficial thing, we're talking about organic agriculture that you can do is cover cropping. You know, as those cover crop plants release root exudates into the soil, they're attracting a certain community of microorganisms. So maybe those can help out with your cannabis roots as well. In addition to that, these cover crops, they keep, the soil from being exposed to direct sunlight or the direct HID light, which isn't good for soil either. Um, and then you can chop and drop. That's what it's called. Um, they'll cut down these cover crops and just like uh, till them into the soil a little bit or let the microorganisms decompose these cover crops. And now you have nutrients added back to your soil. So, yeah, I, I think adding microbes to your soil is good. I think cover cropping is good. I think there are a number of good organic practices that farmers can be doing. It's what is uh, what makes most sense for your particular situation. That's what I like to say. Sure. Um, real quick on like uh, <clears throat> doing cover crops, people that run uh, large pots, I mean, say, say 45 plus gallons, um, are using cover crops in, in the pots. You, do you think they're beneficial? I think that they are. Okay. I like I like to do them. Or if I'm not doing that, I at least want to put like some mulch layer on, like a straw or maybe wood chips. Maybe um, one thing you have to be concerned with if you're doing straw, um, something that people are concerned with is these straw farms. It's very difficult to find organic straw. Bales of straw that are fully organic, very difficult to find. And one of the things that people are concerned with is if that straw was sprayed with glyphosate or some other um, pesticide, herbicide, and now you're using that as a mulch and you're watering over that, and then you take your cannabis flower and you extract it, which just concentrates all those chemicals even more in the final product, people are concerned about some of those maybe herbicides or pesticides that were found on the straw getting into the cannabis. But I like cover cropping. Um, I think that's a beneficial way to do it. I, I'm not cover cropping in a five-gallon pot, though, you know. But if I'm growing over 50-gallon pots, 45-gallon pots, yeah, sure, I'll throw some cover crop seed in it. Any uh, recommendations for IPM for organic? Um, I know you had mentioned taking organics and, and using them as foiler. Sounds like a good, at least a good option to try or see if it'll work for you. Um, anything else that you can recommend? I know that the ODA has a list of things that are acceptable. Uh, are they acceptable in organic farming? I mean, I know you want to try to never put anything you don't need on there, but is there any kind of foiler or IPM that you can recommend for strictly organic farmers? 
Yeah, uh, so integrated pest management, I'd say the first thing is scouting and having good good practices, being clean, not leaving debris around, especially if you're in an indoor facility, you know, and just one, inspecting your plants on a regular basis and have good scouting practices in place. You can use um, those little yellow plastic traps, but don't use them to trap the organisms. Use them to monitor. Identify or monitor, yeah. Yeah, and change them weekly or have a protocol in place for that. With organics, I would say that, um, again, we're growing healthy soil, which in turn will grow our healthy plants, which have this healthy microbial community all around them, which offers some sort of protection to the plant. So... If we have these healthy plants, they're going to be less susceptible to pathogens or even biotic stresses or abiotic stresses. And as far as additional things that you can be, say, spraying on your plants, um, yeah, I think that there are a number of products, if you're looking for a product, there are a number of products that you can spray as a preventative to help maybe increase that community of microorganisms on your leaf surface. Um, there are a number of fungi that you could use for different things as well. I'll, I'll talk about one real quick. Uh, Bavaria bassiana. So that's a fungus, and it's a fungus that kills like soft-body insects. So that would be something that you could add into your soil, and then as these, say, aphids or whatnot, root aphids are crawling around, um, this fungus, the spore gets on the body of the insect and actually begins to colonize the insect from the outside in and um, kills them that way. So that's a great organic thing that you can use. It's just a fungus that you're using. Um, so it's not like a super chemical, nasty thing, Michael Butrinol type. Uh, I, I can't remember the name now and I wish I could because it worked well, but it was a product that I found that had, uh, I don't know if it was bacteria or what kind of organism it was, but it, the first part of it was strepto something strepto. I uh, can't remember. Uh, and I've lidicus something like that. Uh, something like that. And, uh, it seemed to really benefit the plants. I didn't have any, <clears throat> excuse me. I didn't have too many problems with it those years that I, that I used it. Um, so I, I wish I could remember the name to, to let the listeners know, but, but it worked well uh, and it was all, it was, you know, an organic organism of some sort of some sort. Um, I've also noticed seed, uh, working from seed. I think it's worth I agree. it. I, I think there's a number of benefits of growing from seed. Personally, I produce seed at home, so I'm just growing from seed and I don't want to keep mothers. I don't want to take clones. So it's like, all right, I'm just growing from seed. I agree with what you're saying. They're more vigorous. Uh, healthy plants, maybe more resistant to certain pests and pathogens. Um, so I'm all for growing from seed and supporting the seed industry. Saving your own seed, um, making your own seed, I think is very satisfying practice, you know. And that way you're growing something that nobody else has. Yeah, for sure. Different. And that's cool to me. Uh, circling back to the Streptomyces thing, um, there are a number of products that have that organism in it or an organism like that. That is called the Streptomyces in particular. That is an actinomycete, it's called, which is actually a filamentous bacterium. So microscopic, it looks almost like a fungus, but it's actually a bacterium. 
And that one in particular, the mode of action of one of the reasons why it works, obviously you spray it on your leaf tissue, it will begin to colonize that phylosphere and make it more difficult for pathogens to enter. On top of that, this uh, filamentous bacterium also produces an antifungal compound called natamycin. So in addition to the physical um, structure, or, you know, physically not allowing something to land, it's also producing a compound to deter fungi from growing. Interesting. Yeah, that's a cool, effective organism that is Excellent. Like, yeah. Well, I'm glad I ran into that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mentioned that. <laughs> no, no, that's great. No, that's good to hear because uh, I did post it on my Instagram when I was using it, and, and my plants were just ultra healthy that year. Uh, I don't, I think it was a little spendy, but it could have been the brand I was using. You know, I don't know. Uh, but it seemed a, a good organic option. Even some of the organic things, I, I, I try to stay away from Azimax even and stuff like that. I don't even think they're on, I don't even think it's on an, the acceptable list for ODA, ODA anymore. Is it as a Dracton? I don't uh, think it is. Dracton is in particular, there are product, you know, so as a is just the active ingredient of uh, yeah. neem seed actually. Right. But I mean, especially in Oregon, I don't want to use any of that stuff because it seems like every week something else is getting stop sale because they're adulterating their product. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Yeah. That's you the know? scary part is. It's effective because there's this other nasty chemical in it. There's some synergy going on that's not supposed to be. <laughs> right, right. Exactly, exactly. All right. I know we keep getting off uh, track here, but let's finish up with the uh, with your lines. So you've got the conventional, you got the organic. It's offered on both. Uh, if people want to check it out and get some info on it, uh, what grosscience.com? Is that absolutely? You can check us out on our website, growthscience.com. Also, our Instagram, Facebook, this growth science, uh, hashtag growth science. That's a lot of our growers use that. Um, so, yeah, really, to sum it up, growth science, we're a company devoted to supplying commercial cannabis cultivators with quality inputs. And now we have hopefully something for everybody. If you are growing hydroponically, I would recommend more of our conventional line, readily available chelated plant nutrients, growing in soil, outdoors. A lot of our hemp growers, they're more attracted to this uh, organic line. Um, and that's great for soil growers everywhere, indoors and out. So look us up if you have any questions about anything that we discussed here today. You can send us an email or give us a call and I'd be happy to talk to you. Okay, calling, um, emails, that's uh, easy enough, kyle at growthscience.com. Okay, um, I think unless you want to talk anything else, I think that's about it. Well, I appreciate you guys. Thank you, Oregon Reed, for having us on. This has been nice. It's been fun. I enjoy having these conversations with people and just talking about growing and the science of cannabis and all that. And, uh, yeah, hopefully next time we're in southern Oregon, uh, we can stop by and maybe link up. Absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah. And we'll sit down and maybe uh, even try to pick your brain then too. <laughs> Thank you.